All right, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are looking at the prophecy of Isaiah this summer. We're about halfway through it now. We're going to continue in the fall. So the first half uh, ends basically tonight, chapters 1 through 39. And then um, we're going to start 40 through 66 uh, next week in the fall. So that'll be our fall series in the second half of Isaiah. And the second half of Isaiah is more... Um, all about comfort uh, and God's salvation, God's deliverance. Uh, but this first section kind of ends in some ways with a preview of that, with God delivering his people here. Um, and it's this short story. It's actually history. So most of Isaiah is prophecy and poetry. Um, but this portion of Isaiah is actually a short story. It's, it's, a, it's a history. It's a history that takes place in 700 B.C., and it's really important to know this. This really did happen. Um, you know, we're um, evangelical Christians uh, in this church. So generally evangelicals believe that the Bible is inspired with a very high view of the, the authority of Scripture. But this is one of those things where I can just say whether you're an evangelical or not, um, whether you're a Christian or not, this is simply a fact that this story really did happen. Maybe not in every detail. I mean, I believe they all in every detail. You can't historically prove every detail, but you can say for certain uh, that this basic outline uh, occurred because you can go to the British Museum in London um, and there is this thing there called the Taylor Prism, uh, named after this person that discovered it named Taylor. And um, it it has a carved tale uh, story of the victories that Assyria uh, won over all of these different nations, some of which are listed here, and including the, the 46 different cities of Israel that they captured. And it even says, um, it says that uh, they had surrounded Jerusalem and that they had Hezekiah trapped like a caged bird. That's actually on the Taylor prism. Like a caged bird, he was trapped in Jerusalem. Interestingly, it doesn't ever say that they captured Jerusalem. It just says they went back home. It doesn't say why, but it does say they went back home, that they were repulsed. And the reason it never mentions that is because it never happened. They never captured Jerusalem. You would think of all the places they took that that would be the most important one, but it doesn't mention that. And that's why this is a story of deliverance. Uh, It's a story of deliverance. Uh, It should have happened. It should have been taken. Jerusalem should have fallen. But God comes and protects it. And this would make a great film. Um, You know, if you think of... Uh, like Ian McKellen as Isaiah. You know, he played Gandalf. And um, I think of Anthony Hopkins as, as Hezekiah. He'd be a great king. And Kevin Spacey as Sennacherib, you know, the evil king. And like every great story, this story has uh, the shape of kind of a U, where it bottoms out with the trapped like a caged bird. But then at the very bottom... In the midst of the despair, suddenly it rockets back up the other side. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he, um, he calls these eucatastrophes. So you add the word uh, E-U, the little Greek prefix which means good, uh, to the word catastrophe, and it's like a good catastrophe. And he thinks that all the great stories um, have this shape of a, of a eucatastrophe. So in, in his own book, The Hobbit, you know, the hobbits are trapped in a tree, uh, or all these trees. It's, the trees are burning. The orcs are beneath them. They're dead. The fire's going up the tree. And then, of course, at that very moment, the, uh, the eagles swoop in and uh, take them away. So that's one example. 
the ultimate example in the Lord of the Rings is where Gollum, uh, this evil uh, little Gollum who keeps trying to get the ring, he finally has the ring, and that's basically the end. You know, evil has won. But then in the last second, he kind of trips and falls into the fire of Mount Doom, and the ring is destroyed, and everything goes well. So here we have Jerusalem, you know, trapped, uh, again, like, like a caged bird. They're, they're dead for sure, and then all of a sudden at the bottom, it swings up with this angel of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a second. The angel of the Lord. Who exactly is that? The angel of the Lord strikes down the entire Assyrian army. So what I want to look at is, uh, is that deliverance. Before we look at the deliverance, uh, I want to look at the way that the, the people of Israel probably did not believe in that deliverance. Um, I want to look at, at suspicion and distrust, um, which is kind of the dark side of the whole story. It's the very thing that the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, writes this letter, and he tries to really kind of grind them down, and he tries to get them to believe that their God is not a God who will deliver. And so I want to look at that first, the, the kind of suspicion that uh, people like Sennacherib or other people in our lives, who is the king of Assyria, uh, plant inside of our minds. So... Uh, first, uh, suspicion, and then we'll look at deliverance. So, um, as I said, at 700 B.C., there are 185,000 Assyrian troops surrounding this little square mile of what is left of the kingdom of God, the city of Jerusalem. And surrender is absolutely inevitable. The war is basically over now. Uh, and because the Assyrians would rather not have to fight the last battle... They decide they're going to attack through psychological warfare. And we looked at this last week. That guy who's called the Rabshakeh, we looked at that last week. And he attacked the people about their guilt. And he attacked them with condemnation and threats. This week, uh, because that didn't really work last week, the Assyrians really didn't gain any ground with that. The people of Jerusalem weren't uh, destroyed by that. This week, Sennacherib himself decides he's going to write a letter and instead of going after the people, he goes after uh, their trust in God. He goes after um, their faith. And he wants to make Israel suspicious of their God, this God that they call Yahweh. Uh, they call him uh, the great I Am, the one and only God. Um, that's what he appears to as the burning bush to Moses. He says, my name is I Am that I Am. I am the one true creator God over all the world. And the, uh, the empire here, the Assyrian Empire, but really all empires, uh, they, they do not want us to trust in that one creator God, Yahweh, because they want us to put their trust in them. Um, that would be true of really any empire that has ever existed. They always want um, the ultimate allegiance to their people. They might use the gods to kind of increase that trust in them, but never do the empires want their to be this one ultimate God, uh, Yahweh, the creator, who is to be given ultimate allegiance. And so they try to erode uh, the trust in the one who is the great I am. So look at verse 12. Remember, this is a letter that Sennacherib sent to Hezekiah to try to make them stop believing in Yahweh. Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed. Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, and the people of Eden who are in Talasser. 
In other words, what he's saying there is, why do you think your little god, King Hezekiah, is going to deliver you when all these other gods clearly did not? You know, every culture has their little god. And uh, so why do you think that your god is different from the other ones? How can you say that this god that you worship, this Yahweh, the supposed Yahweh, uh, the great I am, is really different or in some ways uh, greater than the other gods? And uh, it's very interesting because when I talk to people, uh, I talk to a lot of skeptics, which I love to do because I myself was once not a believer. And this is one of the reasons I was not a believer. Uh, when, I was, when I was not a believer, one of the main objections I had was, well, how do you know that your God is the one God, is the true God? And so when I talk to skeptics today, that would be maybe the, the highest level objection that I hear is... Uh, People will say, well, um, you know, I don't know about all the details of Christianity, but I do know that your claim that Jesus is the only way seems to me to be very arrogant, especially in light of all these other religions. So how can you say that your God is the only God? And what's interesting here is that basically that's what Sennacherib is saying also, is that he, he, is, uh, he is saying that um, you've got all these gods of, you know, Gozon, Haran, Rezpa, Eden... Um, this, this is not a new objection, in other words. This goes way back. This is 700 B.C. This, this objection to Yahweh has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, Sennacherib knew more about other religions than any of us do here. I mean, he actually lived amongst these people, knew them well. He knew these gods well. He knew these religions well. He had his own religion. And uh, so we're not the first generation uh, to live in a highly pluralistic religious society. It's, uh, it's chronological snobbery to believe that we're the first ones to ever have encountered uh, other religions today in America. The Roman Empire, where Christianity got its start, was way more pluralistic, uh, even than in Sennacherib's day. The early Christians rubbed shoulders with people of all sorts of other faiths in the Roman Empire. And yet somehow we think that, you know, like 50 or 100 years ago, uh, people suddenly realized, oh my gosh, there are people out there who believe in in Allah or in Buddha or, you know, what other, ever other religions there are. Um, this is nothing new at all. And um, it's important to see here that this objection is kind of going after the, uh, the being or the essence of, of what God says God is. Namely, um, all-controlling and all-powerful and all-knowing and, and the creator. And if there is a creator, there can only be one creator. And that's what this God claims to be. And yet Sennacherib's goal here is to, um, to sow the seeds of doubt in their mind that that could be the case. That there really could be that one uh, almighty creator God. But not only does he go after God's essence and his being, maybe even more important is that he goes after God's character. Um, God's um, love, God's uh, trustworthiness. That's really where he digs in. And, uh, and so you see it in verse, in verse 10. There's an attack on the trustworthiness of Yahweh. He says, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Implying that, that of course, God has been telling them that, that they're not going to fall. He's been telling them that they're not going to be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. He's been telling them to just wait and let him act. And so Sennacherib is saying, um, he is deceiving you by making that promise. 
That's deception. And that's a very strong, strong word. Uh, if you accuse someone of being a deceiver, um, that's a very, very serious charge against their character. I was once talking to a wife uh, and asked her if she trusted her husband. And, uh, and he was sitting there next to her, and she started crying and said, you know, I, I really don't know if I do anymore. I don't know if I can. And, of course, that's absolutely devastating. Can you imagine having that you know, spoken to you? Um, it's a serious charge to say you're not trustworthy, in other words. But this is beyond that. This is saying not only you're not trustworthy, but you're a deceiver. Uh, he is saying that, that your God is a deceiver. He's telling you to stay put, but that's only because he wants you to die a slow and painful death. If you remember last week, he said, you're, uh, the king of uh, Assyria said, you're going to eat your own dung and you're going to drink your own urine. And that happened a lot of times in these sieges. And so Sennacherib is saying he's telling you to stay put, but he wants to see you die that slow and painful death that we promised you was going to happen. So just imagine a parent. Those of you who are parents, imagine telling your child, uh, I'm going to go into Harris Teeter here. Uh, this will be a small child. And I'm going to roll up all the windows. I know it's hot out there. I'm going to lock the doors. Don't get out of the car. It's going to be okay. And then, you know, like a few hours later, coming out there, deceiving your child intentionally. I mean, that's so, that's so evil and heinous that I can't even imagine a parent doing that, intentionally deceiving their child like that. And I have a very pessimistic view of human nature, and yet I can't even imagine that a parent would ever do that. But that is what Sennacherib is implying, not just about a parent, but about God, about our Creator. That God's uh, character is as a deceiver. That he is telling them, stay in Jerusalem, Assyria is not going to hurt you, but really, actually, he wants to hurt you badly. He wants to see you suffer. And um, the scary thing about this charge is that, is that Sennacherib obviously has done this before, and he knows that this can work. He knows that there is this primordial suspicion that he, he's tapping into here. He wouldn't even try this if he didn't think that humans would believe this kind of thing. But obviously we, we do. Because children don't need to be trained to distrust God. No one ever gave me a lesson in, in distrusting God. My parents never sat me down and said, you really can't trust this one. You know, he, he claims to be loving, but no, he's not really. You don't ever take a class on not trusting God. And you, there are no podcasts that I know of or TED Talks about not, this is the way you not, don't trust God. And yet it's, it's down there, isn't it? In all of us. And that's what Sennacherib is trying to tap into, this kind of paranoia that's deep in our mind. It's almost like an unreasonable suspicion of the Creator. And uh, the, the great uh, psychologist Carl Jung, uh, who coined this term the collective unconscious, uh, he probably would have said that this distrust is somewhere down there, it, deep in the human collective unconscious. And what that basically means is that there's he thought there was part of our mind that contained uh, memories and impulses uh, of which the individual is not aware and didn't really come up with. You know, and in Christian terms, this would be called uh, original sin. But this idea that, that before you were born, there were these things in you, these memories and these impulses. And one of them is that uh, God is not to be trusted. The universe is not to be trusted. The creator is not to be trusted. As uh, Morpheus says to Neo, if you've seen The Matrix, he says, 
You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. That's, that's in there. That's why Sennacherib even does this, because he knows that that can be done. Shall you really be delivered, verse 11? Shall you really be delivered? Don't you ever hear that mockery when you're trusting in God for something? Shall you really be delivered? Is that really going to happen? I sometimes think that when things are going well, um, God is, is kind of tricking me and toying with me. So if the church is going well or my family's not fighting, uh, if someone that I know is starting to become closer to Christ, I feel like they're, they're moving towards faith, uh, I feel like that you know, he's just going to pull it, pull it away the last second. Like he enjoys that. Um, kind of the way I treat my dog sometimes. I'll, like, I'll put a piece of pizza in Lucky's face, and then I love to see him kind of snap at it, and I'll pull it away really quickly. <laughs> not, not too long, and I eventually give him the pizza. But, you know, I, I just something about that is enjoyable to me. So imagine, imagine if you were a child and your parents really were like that. That your parents really didn't mess with you in that way. Uh, like, here's a delicious treat. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to protect you. Whoops. Pull it away. And never give it to you. Just like to see you kind of reach for it and grab it and then snatch it away. You know, if a child figured out that her parents were really doing that, like around 10 years old, and they came to this awareness that that's what their parents were doing, and I suppose there are parents like that, can you imagine the trauma that child would live with the rest of their life. They, 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 they learned that their parent deceived them, was, uh, was deceiving them. Well, how much more traumatic if we project that onto the creator of the universe and think that the one who made us is actually toying with us? Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising you deliverance. Stop allowing your malicious creator to deceive you. That's what he's saying here. And, uh, and we believe it. That his promises are a lie. That he's out to get us. That he's not safe. That it's not okay. In spite of what we were saying earlier, it's not really okay. So that's point one. Is that there's that suspicion inside of us. And now, the good news here is that there's deliverance. And not only deliverance from Sennacherib's army... But the really main deliverance I want to talk about here is the deliverance in terms of the distrust. The deliverance in terms of the suspicion and the paranoia. That we can actually be delivered from that. It's probably even more important than being delivered from the Assyrian army. So look at verse 14. King Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord. Uh, Capital L-O-R-D means Yahweh. And uh, the Bible, English Bible is just translated that way, but it's actually the proper name, Yahweh. Uh, so he went up to the house of Yahweh. He spread uh, the letter, Sennacherib's suspicious, despairing letter. He spread it out before the Lord. So how, I mean, they didn't write on, you know, note cards back then. Uh, this would have been a large parchment. He takes that in. He lays it down in front of his God. And before we get to the the whole angel of the Lord thing in the army, just, just realize that that in itself is a miracle. That, that however it happened, that that is a deliverance in itself. That this person, this king, 
could be delivered from suspicion into that level of trust where he would take that letter to God in that scenario. Uh, that's amazing. He doesn't mope around the city walls. He doesn't uh, lock himself in his bedroom and uh, you know, clean furiously or binge on Netflix or whatever you do to kind of just block that stuff out. He doesn't complain to his wife about the religious persecution in the country. He enters into the throne room of God. And he takes all of his distrust there. He doesn't just bring uh, himself into the throne room and kind of lock out the suspicion out there and try to pretend everything's good. He spreads out the letter. I love that he spreads out the letter in the face of God. Just to say, look at this, Lord. This is what we're dealing with. I'm not pretending here. I want to speak to you honestly. He doesn't kind of wad it up in a ball and, uh, and try to hide it, but he spreads it out. You know, the way that you take a like a beach towel and it's all balled up and cold and wet and you just you spread it out in the sun and it dries it out. That's what, that's what we're to do with our despair in front of God. To, to tell God out loud. He obviously prayed this out loud because if he hadn't prayed it out loud, he wouldn't have these words. But in verse 15, he prayed to the Lord. He doesn't just, he doesn't enter his house and spread it out. He doesn't just do that. He actually starts to talk. And he talks very honestly. Look at verse 18 and 19. It is true, O Lord, it is true. I'm not hiding these facts from you. The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations. Sennacherib is right in what he's saying. They have wiped out all those gods. They have laid waste all those lands. They have cast their gods into the fire. It's as bad as he says. I'm not pretending before you. He, he speaks that to God. Uh, I was praying with a couple recently and things were very hard in their lives uh, with work uh, with their own relationship with their children sometimes these things just all hit us at once and uh, they're, they're in one of those places where it feels like God is out to get you because he just keeps bringing things in from different directions and um, of course I've been there of course um, it's, it's a terrible feeling when you really think that, that God must be out to get you and in a situation like that if you've been there you know that it's very, very hard to start praying. It's kind of like the last thing you want to do. It feels almost silly to pray, kind of like it's too weak to do that. Like, you're, like you have a Nerf uh, gun out in a street fight. That, that prayer is just kind of trivial or something like that. But uh, I found that it helps to just start, just start talking to God about what's going on. That's a good place to start. Uh, just to start talking to God about what's happening. So, you know, I've prayed prayers like just telling God we're fighting all the time. You know, my wife and I are fighting all the time. My children are out of control. I can't sleep. I'm not sleeping, Lord. Uh, my medication's not working. Work is horrible. Uh, I can't stand my principal. I can't stand my co-teachers. I think that I failed my church history exam. I've prayed all those prayers. And uh, that's what God obviously wants. That's what Hezekiah does here as a sign of his trust. But he doesn't just say how he feels. He actually, he kind of frames it with uh, the very nature of God and the character of God. So he, he frames his prayer with who God is. It's not just like he just kind of throws up in God's presence everything wrong with himself. That's not what he does here. He, he frames it with God's being and God's character. The very things that Sennacherib caused him to doubt. So in verse 16, he says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim were like these angels, these archangels. You are the God, you alone, 
of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That's a, that's an indir- that's a, it's an in-your-face to exactly what Sennacherib was charging God with. That God couldn't be the only God. And, and he's saying, no, God is the, the only God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens. You're sovereign. So he rejects that lie from Sennacherib. And then he also rejects the suggestion that God doesn't care. In verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord. And of course, this is... Uh, this is uh, God condescending to their level. He knows that God doesn't have ears. He knows that God doesn't have eyes. Uh, this is called anthropomorphic language. But he says, basically, uh, God, I know you care. I know you see us. I know you hear us. Uh, we're, we're not forgotten by you. We're not ignored by you. You see and you hear. And he doesn't just tell God what's hurting in his heart. He doesn't just tell God who God is. This is a very important part of prayer. Uh, he asks for a change. And in case you're kind of a, one of those people who's, who thinks you're super spiritual, like you're too holy to ask for God to do anything, that you're just supposed to have God you know, kind of change your attitude. No, that's not, that's not biblical. Biblically, you also are encouraged to actually ask God to change the circumstances that are going on. And so he does that. He talks about what's going on. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And what does God do when he prays that prayer? Well, there's obviously a lot of verses in between that and the deliverance. And so what God does is he does not immediately answer. He waits, kind of puts pause. Um, He gives them space to trust and so what he does is he first talks to Isaiah. He doesn't talk to Hezekiah. He goes to uh, the Ian McKellen figure and he says, uh, Sennacherib shall not come into the city, verse 33. Now he's already told him this, but he just reiterates it. Trust me, he's not going to come into the city. Verse 35, I will defend the city to save it. Trust me. Now he's already said that before, but he's willing to repeat it. And then only after that does Isaiah talk to the king in verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord. So first, God talks to Isaiah, and then he tells Isaiah it's going to be okay. And then Isaiah tells Hezekiah it's going to be okay. And then Hezekiah tells the people it's going to be okay. But there's that space there where he wants us to trust. That period where he pauses... And he wants us to overcome that primordial paranoia, that divine suspicion that we have. It's like the moment, um, and I wouldn't know this from personal experience, but I've heard stories where uh, adoptive parents, where their child, you know, this orphan who is, of course, traumatized and terrified of trusting any parent ever again, at some point there's that moment where they kind of finally uh, crawl into the lap of the parent and um, just trust. And the suspicion kind of dissolves, or at least begins to dissolve. And that's what God is looking for here. That moment where the, the paranoia, the suspicion, this trust kind of melts away, and, they, and then God acts. And that's when God acts. Because that's actually more important than the other deliverance. But then God does act. In verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 
in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, and that word just means look. It's used in the Bible a lot. And it's a way of just saying, look, behold, there were all, these were all dead bodies. These were all dead bodies. And that's a very heavy verse, and I pause for that reason. I think when you read a verse like that in the Bible, um, it is appropriate to kind of pause and say that's really hard. And one commentary said this is the single most devastating sentence in the Bible because of the loss of life there, 185,000. So just because it's a short sentence doesn't mean that Isaiah treats that lightly, not at all. It's intentionally compact to just carry that weight, that punch. Imagine the next morning that a Hebrew soldier, there's no more sound in the camp. There's no more activity. Uh, You can hear the birds. And uh, so the, the Hebrew soldier kind of creeps out of the gates of Jerusalem, not sure if this is a ruse, and begins to move into the Assyrian camp and uh, maybe opens up tent doors and then realizes that they're, they're walking in a sea of corpses. These are all dead people around them. Suddenly, like that, that in, in the night, the angel of the Lord comes and they're all gone. And uh, again, that is very dark and it's very heavy and it's awful. And the Bible intends us to feel that way. But it's also deliverance. And we can't neglect that. This is the way God delivers. Uh, There is an incredible relief there. If you were in Jerusalem and this were to happen, can you imagine the relief that you would feel? And the the tears of joy, there there would be sorrow, of course. There's also this joy, there's this newfound trust that God is real, that God acted, that God is faithful to his promises. It, It reminds me of the story where the Hebrew slaves have been pursued relentlessly by Pharaoh and all his chariots. And he just comes again and again. He attacks them again and again. He will not let up. And finally, uh, they cross the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea. They cross through. They look back. And the waves have collapsed together over Pharaoh's army. And again, of course, it's devastating in one sense. But in another sense, that they, they sing and they dance. And they pull out their tambourines and their drums And they make merry because God has delivered in a very heavy way, but still he's delivered. And so now think about uh, think about the crucifixion of this one man, Jesus Christ, who Christians believe was Yahweh, that the one great creator God became a human and that in his in his crucifixion, this angel of the Lord, who throughout the Old Testament You get these hints that the angel of the Lord is not really just an angel, that he's a lot more than an angel, because people worship the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is used at times in dialogue. Sometimes it says God, and then sometimes it says the angel of the Lord. It uses them interchangeably. So this is some kind of mysterious, pre-incarnate, divine figure, the angel of the Lord. And in the cross, the angel of the Lord, of course, does not annihilate soldiers or other people. He himself is willingly annihilated. And that's the real deliverance. When, when God himself becomes one of us, enters into our suffering, and delivers us through his own complete destruction, the angel of the Lord is destroyed. And that, that event is what truly 
uh, moves us. And I think that really alone is what can move a human being fully from this intense distrust and suspicion into uh, grateful adoration for what God has done. And so uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is the real deliverance. This is what the destruction of the empire is foreshadowing.